Well, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and I'm going to read from verse 28 to 34. And um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we hear the Word of God, after which I will pray this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, reading from verse 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Father God, this morning, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come in a country like this to worship you and to hear your word. I pray this morning, as I have already prayed, that your Holy Spirit would bring truth to my reflections on the text. Would we recognize today that your word comes alive because of your spirit, comes alive not only to make us understand what it says, but to make us live what it teaches. So I pray this morning that truth will be spoken that open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you are inviting us to do. I pray also if there be anyone amongst us who senses the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to renewal of heart and life, I pray that such a person would find the confidence to welcome you into their lives. May we this morning anticipate as we have worshiped that you are good that you are God, and that you are present. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you sit, will you turn to the person next to you and say, it's going to be good. Okay, you may be seated. Some of you, some of you didn't say it. That's okay. I won't hold it against you. How do we know that we're on track as Christians? How do we know that we are doing what God has called us to do? I think one of the most important questions we ought to ask ourselves more and more and often, not just one time, is how do I know that I'm about the things that God cares about most? I won't be critical, but I will be to some extent, that sometimes we lose what matters most in life. Priorities get shifted, things change, we get led down trails and we, we, we give our affections 
to things which we consider to be important, and rightly so. But there are many times, perhaps, where we are tempted to forsake what matters most. I think our scripture this morning is a scripture that invites us to reflect upon the words of Jesus as kind of this invitation to come back to what matters most in life. Now, I am a husband, and and I am a father, and there are many things in my life that are important, and rightly so. My children matter a great deal to me, and I think they matter a great deal to God. That was my seven-foot daughter standing up here this morning doing the announcement. (laughs) Sorry, honey. I mean, my tall daughter. Very proud of you. Uh, She's taller than a mom now. (laughs) Uh, My wife means a great deal to me. She is not only a support to me, but I learned to support her. And this morning, I was very, very proud of her because she led a study this morning for the first time that, that I have to say, honey, people have said is awesome, and they'll come back. I'm not here to promote my family. (laughs) But there is a sense in which the calling of Jesus Christ for each and every Christian is to begin with what matters most. In fact, I would put it to you this way, that when you begin with what matters most, all the other important things in your life find its proper perspective. And I find that this kind of message is in particular very, very relevant to Christians who have walked this journey for many years. There comes a time where we have to ask ourselves, are we still about the things of God? Our text, to be, uh, our text this morning appears to be one that offers us an answer to this question. Which one, says the scribe, out of the 613 commandments prevalent at the time of Jesus comes before anything and is binding on everyone? Now you have to understand that this question comes out of a day of confrontation with the religious leaders. They had been testing him on different aspects of his theology. They have been coming after Jesus. And in the 19 references to scribes in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only one that appears to be non-adversarial or non-confrontational. I know that we as Bible learners understand that if you are looking for the bad guys in the Gospels, look for the Pharisees and the scribes. Look for the religious persons. Look for those who are close to the law and the Torah, and you find that Jesus seems to resist them the most. But here, out of the 19 references, is one reference to what appears to be a sincere scribe. A man who had heard how well Jesus talked with others and was so impressed that he launches a question, which, by the way, was very common at the time of Jesus. You know, uh, one of Jesus' older contemporaries, Hillel, a rabbi, was asked this very same question. And, And it was apparently, as I did my research, very common to put the rabbi on a spot and say to him, give us the whole law in a nutshell. You know, kind of just distill it into something that we can kind of understand a little bit because there's so much to it. Perhaps as people here this morning, you would say, Pastor, I sometimes wish you would just distill things a little bit more. When they asked Hillel, this older contemporary of Jesus, what matters most, this is how he responded. What you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. 
Go and learn it. When Jesus responds to this scribe, he responds to him unlike he responds to any other scribes, dare I say, in the Gospels. I think the reason Jesus responds to this scribe, unlike he does in a confrontational way to the others, is because here we have a man who is sincere in what he is asking. You know how sometimes people can ask questions, but they don't really ask the question. They're kind of saying something. Or how perhaps in the Bible we read that sometimes when they ask questions, their motivations are not always pure, and so they come at Jesus with different motivations. But here we have a sincere scribe that says, listen, tell me what this all boils down to. And in Jesus' response, he brings together the Torah. Now, this is really important. The, the first 10 minutes of my message is usually a little boring, but the last five is going to be really good. But Jesus responds by quoting the Torah. Now, anyone here who was in the class this morning would have heard what the Torah was about. But for those of you who may not know, the Torah kind of referred to the, the Old Testament, in particular the first five books. Whenever a religious scribe, a Jewish teacher, or a Pharisee would consider any teaching to be formative or important, it will begin by referencing the Old Testament, the Torah in particular. So Jesus, being who he is, says, Hear, O Israel, right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The word hear translated in the Hebrew to the word Shema, which simply just means listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So Jesus responds by affirming that the answer he's about to give is what the scribe considers to be the starting point for whatever truth God cares about. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. By, by the way, Jesus brings together two references, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And he mashes it together, and he says this, and the second is like the first, or the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I saw what my preaching schedule had for me to preach on, I said, how much more, Pastor Ryan, can be said on this scripture? How much more can I preach to people who have heard, oh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Have you ever found in life that you can know something, but you need to hear it again and again and again? Have you ever noticed that sometimes the most simple truth has the most demanding response? That sometimes understanding something and actually living it is two separate things. And unfortunately, I think we live in a culture sometimes where we are perhaps amused or entertained by knowledge that does not transform. By knowing things. By having things in our minds. But dare I say to you that Jesus is the kind of teacher that is teaching on multiple levels. He is teaching not only so that we would understand his ways, but he's teaching so that we would live his ways. Therefore, this church that I pastor as serve as one of the pastors cannot simply be about a pastor preaching good messages. It must be about a community of faith transformed by the word that they take into their life and into their hearts that 
what we understand the Word says has to be lived out in our daily expression. In fact, I think to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength is best made evident in the relationships we have with one another. Dare I say it to you this way, you can profess to love God with everything, but if you do not love your neighbor, Jesus would question whether you truly love God. And I want to stress how important this is. There seems to be a dualistic way of approaching religion. The dualism is put at an end in Jesus' response, for he says to love God is not simply a heart thing. By the way, in the Bible, heart speaks about the seat of volition, you know, the, the place from which desire, uh, decisions are made. In fact, when you read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this, he says, love the Lord with your passion. Become passionate with Him. Love the Lord with your soul. Love the Lord with your mind. By the way, Jesus throws in mind, because it's not in the Old Testament reference. And He's Jesus, so He's okay to throw in things that weren't there before. And with all your strength. I want you to slow that down in your mind and realize that what God is saying, that to love Him is first an act of complete devotion. It's everything about us. In fact, it speaks against a dualistic understanding of religion that goes something like this. I feel Jesus in my heart and in my mind, but I'm not going to do anything with my life because as long as I have the sense of loving him inside me, Jesus would say, no, it's not just what you think, and it's not just what you feel, it's not just the center of your being, but it's also your strength to love me. To love me means something more than just an intrinsic sense of love. It has implications to how I live my life. All of me. Therefore, my friends, when you are in the marketplace or you are in, in school, when you are wherever you are, when you are using your capacities and your abilities, you have a choice to make whether I will use it in such a way as to bring honor to God, as to love Him with everything about me. How we take care of our bodies and our minds and our souls and our spirits is an act of worship and love to God. How we use our faculties and our abilities and our strength is an act of worship and love to God. God is unleashing us to love Him so wholeheartedly that the world will be loved through us. For the great commandment is not just about Him, but it is what He does in and through us unto the other. Now get this. You are kind of like the crowd in the text. You're silent. Did you notice that after Jesus' teaching, no one dared ask him a question? I don't know if that's a good thing for a teacher. We've got teachers here that will say, no, good teaching elicits questions. But no, everybody was quiet and dared not ask him a question again. So, so as I was doing my research, I came across a commentary that is in, in the form of a uh, cartoon. So I want to bring this cartoon up to show you. No chuckles yet? Can you read it? Okay, I'll read it through it for you, okay? No one asks any more questions? This is based on the text. It's a very biblical cartoon, in case you're worried. No. They try to make Jesus appear foolish, but as Jesus speaks of loving one's neighbor, they see that Jesus is wise. Yeah. 
I guess, but it sounds like they've never met my neighbor. You know, it's one thing to talk about a love of God that doesn't lead us to a deep love of others. In the Old Testament, when it was referenced in Leviticus 19.18, the word neighbor was implied to fellow Israelite. Do you know what Jesus does in Luke's Gospel? To the question of who is my neighbor, he tells a story of a Samaritan. Do you remember this? And in the telling of the story of the Samaritan, he redefines neighbor as not only a fellow Israelite, but even those who Israel were at odds with. I want you to hear this, and I'm not suggesting, because I'm not convinced that the reason they quiet is because they pondered who their neighbor may be, but I think it's a good enough reason to ponder, don't you? But it seems like what Jesus is doing, he is saying to them that, listen, if you love God with everything, it creates in you this implicit command to love even people on the extremes that you thought was not justified to love. You see, Jesus doesn't speak about neighbor in the way that perhaps we do. Neighbor for me is people who like me. You're my neighbor. Uh, neighbor in our culture is, is people who look like me and agree with me. Neighbor in my worldview is, is, is neighbors who share my worldview and make me feel comfortable because they agree with what I already believe is true. You see, when Jesus uses the word neighbor, he speaks about a love that is so full, so deep, so wide, so great, that it encompasses even those we are at odds with. You want to know whether this simple command is simple to understand? I would say it is, but is it hard to live? Absolutely true. But that's not my main point. Are you impressed? Yeah. I thought that was a good point. I could put a tack in it and be done right there, and you'd say, Pastor was good this morning. Right? Man, you are a hard crowd. Wow. That's my best attempt at humor. I want you to hear the scribe's response. He says, Master, you've answered well. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that because he puts it in words that I can understand. He says, you did an awesome job. That's, that's what I believe. I agree that the love of God is everything and loving your neighbor as yourself. In fact, I believe that it is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now get this. You know where this is happening? This is in the week before Jesus would die. This is in Jerusalem. This is literally days away from the Feast of Passover. Do you know what that means? The scribe knows that fast Passover was all about the religious duties of Jews, and he understands that it's all defined by burnt offerings and sacrifices. There is a proximity to what is happening. Let me put it to you a different way. For the scribe to say, this command is greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices, is literally to say, it is more important than that which I've held to be most important in my life. You want to know 
from me this morning, Pastor, what does this mean for my life? I would say this. What do you consider to be more important than what God considers to be important? Listen, my friends, I, I want to make it clear to you that God wants us to love and care for one another. God wants us to care for our families. God wants us to love even beyond those whom we're comfortable with. And by the way, as our church grows, we're going to have to learn to love people unlike ourselves, to which God's people says, amen. As we desire to represent what it means to be a community of faith in which there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, no barbarian or Scythian, where Christ makes us brothers and sisters, we're going to have to learn how to not just make this about a good theological message, but a practical way of living life together. I, I, I want you to hear what I'm saying, is that we have to live this truth. And I think one of the ways we enter in is to begin by recognizing that it matters more than perhaps what matters most to us today. Does that mean that your families don't matter? Don't leave here with that because that's not what I'm saying. Does it matter? It mean that your career does not matter? No, it matters. But my question for you this morning is, does it matter more than what God cares about? Is there a need for a reorientation of value within your life, a change of perspective, a drawing back so that we would again see through the lens of Jesus Christ the way in which he loves that is costly and hard and difficult. But dare I say to you this morning, our world needs the Christian church to love like this. And so, as we prepare to participate in the sacrament of communion, I want to remind you of a story I told you at our dedication service. I believe it was in the 1800s when the Dutch Reformed Church in the Cape Colony, where I'm from, I'm from Cape Town, South Africa, in case you wondered, I say it often enough, you shouldn't be, had done such a wonderful work in evangelizing the tribal people of the Cape, that when their numbers started to increase and thousands and thousands of indigenous people became believers in Jesus Christ, the church was left with a significant dilemma. What do we do with these people? The Synod was the governing body of this particular church, met and they discern that when somebody confesses the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they become my sister and my brother. They had great theology. <laughs> they understood that, that no longer is this an indigenous person in my view, this is a fellow brother and sister. But they got so much opposition from the members of their church that they decided and said this. Because of the discomfort that this is creating in our prevailing congregations, 
we will say to adherents of Jesus, formerly heathens, that they must gather in their own church and partake in their own sacrament apart from us. History would tell us that this became the seedbed for apartheid. When we come to this table, some of you may come from different theological traditions. This table is referenced as Eucharist. It's referenced as Holy Communion. It is referenced as the Lord's Supper. It means more than just one thing, and I like that. But this morning, it means this, the ability to love others as we have been loved by God. It means that as we eat from this one bread, this one loaf, and drink from this one cup, we testify to this, that we are God's family. This proclamation is more than just religious observance. It is proclaiming what we hope to be true, not only of us, but in our world. I don't know about you, but I watched the President's Choice commercial once. Do commercials make you cry? A good old fashioned, insurance are really good. The insurance ones get me. I'm like, oh, this is about love, and oh no, you need insurance. Uh, I, I watched this President's, uh, I think it's President's Choice commercial where the mom and the, the, the daughter gets home and, and they live in an apartment building. Have you seen this one? And they walk down, you know, the, the, the corridor and, and they go inside the house and they bring out a folding table and they put it out in the corridor. You remember this? Yeah. Some of you are nodding, yeah? And then they bring out their food and as people are coming home, as people are coming home, they invite them to sit down at the table. I did. Have you ever seen that? I love that commercial. And then before you know it, they're having a good old-fashioned Skyview potluck right in the apartment complex, right there. You know, no excuses. My my place is not big enough. You know, no. There's place at this table. I, I think the church is at its best when it eats with people from all walks of life. I think the church is at its best when. There's always a seat at the table, friends. I want to say this very clearly so that you hear me straight from your pastor. We need you to be at the table with others because that's what God wants. To love him, to be present with him. I love the fact that the way that Jesus instructs us to remember him is to come to a table that yes, has the formalities. We have shiny containers, and there is a formality that sometimes we enter into as people that makes us very, very uh, reflective, which is all good. But if there's one thing I don't want you to be blind to this morning as you participate from this sacrament, is those who join you in doing so. For each one who participates knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. The sacrament of communion is one that invites believers and followers in Jesus Christ, those who love him, those who are sincere in desiring to live the life he has called them to, that we be at peace not only with God but with one another. Have you ever noticed how fast peace can escape your life? and my life. 
So perhaps this morning as we prepare to participate, I would like to invite you to reflect and perhaps take the opportunity to confess whatever is before us and God and maybe even more significantly whatever is before us and others. Are there things in our life that needs to be reconciled? Are there people we need to be reconciled with? For after all, to participate as one requires a sincere desire to be reconciled to one another. And so, we quiet our hearts and our minds and we confess Wherever there is brokenness, barriers, wherever there are things that keeps us from entering into relationship either with God or with our fellow man, we say, God, have mercy on us today. Wherever we have not done His will, wherever we have fallen short, wherever we have rebelled against His love, and whenever we have not loved our neighbors, forgive us, we pray. And as we come this morning to this table, I pray, dear God, that you would make us one. Begin that unity in our marriages or in our families. Reconcile husband and wife, mother and daughter, Reconcile neighbors and colleagues, fellow classmates, friendships. Heal wounds that are existent within us, symbols, symptoms of a world that longs to love but has no resource to do so. And by your mercy, make us whole. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.